This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about how researchers are trying to restore the biological soil crusts that grow on our desert soils. We learn about what biocrusts are doing out there in the desert and the efforts going on near Moab to both understand and restore these fragile soil communities. It's a good show. Stay with us. There's a lot of development going on in Moab right now, and more and more encroachment on bio-crusted lands. So if anybody, you know, is building a hotel or <laughs> a house on an area that it has bio-crust on it, they should definitely contact our office and we'll come get it. Today on Science Moab, we're talking about biological soil crust restoration with Natalie Day and Colin Tucker from Moab's U.S. Geological Survey. Both Natalie and Colin are involved with multiple experiments trying to understand how to put biological soil crusts back on the landscape after it has been disturbed. We discuss the challenges and successes of restoring the fascinating soil communities, along with how biological soil crust restoration can interact with multiple uses that occur on our public lands. We begin with Colin describing what biological soil crusts look like and where they can be found on the landscape. So I think anybody who's hiked around um, the Moab area, or anywhere on the Colorado Plateau really, has seen ground covers between um, shrubs and grasses that are, you know, more darkly colored than the background um, red soil. And those are the biological soil crust, or biocrust as we call them. And they're really diverse communities of photosynthetic organisms. So they're a mixture of lichens and mosses, cyanobacteria, algae, and then a lot of other things that live within um, the, the moss or the lichens. Um, and there's soil microorganisms that are associated with them. They're really functional, really important parts of the ecosystem. How big of a part are biocrusts to places that haven't seen human disturbance, and how big of a part are they to places that have seen human disturbance? If you go to a place that has never been disturbed, go way far out there to the middle of needles or arches where no one has walked, or a place where no one can access, like up on a rock ledge, you'll see really cool, big, dark, thick crusts. And those are super cool. They're beautiful. Get down on all fours and you'll see lots of species in there. But in places where people do walk or grazing has occurred more recently, they're still biocrust. They just might not be as dark and as big because they're more early successional species. But they're still important for the ecosystem. When they're just light-colored, that's mostly the first organisms to grow. So light cyanobacteria maybe some mosses, and those are still really important because they provide soil stability. I think it's important to start with how they establish or what some of the 
what each component of the biocrust actually do. So around here, the first organism to establish is typically cyanobacteria. And if you've ever like picked up a piece of crust or you've seen it somewhere where someone has walked and you pick up a piece of crust, you can hold it up and see little filaments hanging down from it. And those are little polysaccharide sheaths, just little filaments that cyanobacteria excrete. And they excrete them because it helps them gather moisture and they can actually travel up and down the little filaments. And there's a whole bunch of stuff you can learn all about the filaments. But the point is cyanobacteria excrete these filaments and that fabric of filaments that they create stabilizes the soil surface. Um, that's really important around here because we have mostly sandy soils. So if we see an area that has been disturbed, like people in Moab in the summer, in the spring, when there's a ton of OHVs driving around, and you look up on um, poison spider mesa, you see a plume of sand coming off of that mesa because there's barely any crust. Whereas if you look at an area that has a nice layer of cyanobacteria, it holds down the soil, preventing that dust from moving around. And then once the soil is stable, other organisms that are a part of a biological soil crust can establish, like lichen and mosses. The lichen and mosses are real workhorses of ecosystem function. Um, they provide a lot more soil stability, in fact, than the cyanobacteria alone. And on top of binding the mineral surface, uh, the mineral soil particles together, um, they also form a layer at the top of the soil surface, which um, completely protects it from erosion. On top of that, they also are really important in the, in the chemistry of the ecosystem. So all the organisms in the biological soil crust are photosynthetic. That's how they live separately from plants. But mosses and lichens have much higher photosynthetic rates than cyanobacteria. So they bring a lot of carbon into the ecosystem, which helps promote soil organic matter formation um, and generally serves as something of a carbon sink. And even more importantly, lichen and mosses fix either fix nitrogen or, or serve as habitat for bacteria that fix nitrogen. And so because they bring nitrogen into the soil, they're pretty important for soil fertility, especially in areas such as ours that have pretty um, nutrient-poor background soil. The mineral soils really don't have a lot of nitrogen in them to begin with. On top of that, you know, the, the crusts are a different color than the soil surface, and that means they have a different effect on the energy balance. So sunlight that hits mineral soil is almost entirely reflected. Sunlight that hits a darkly pigmented crust is absorbed and it warms the crust, which changes the background temperature of the soil and can influence the soil temperature. It can influence the duration of snow snowpack, um, which you know can have a lot of effects on the ecosystem. After biocrust is disturbed, how long does it take for crust to recover? Yeah, that is definitely the number one question I get when I, people find out I study biocrust. And the answer is complicated. And it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the soil type. It depends on the 
climate following disturbance. It depends on the uh, disturbance type. So starting with disturbance type, I guess a lot of people wonder, well, me walking, you know, say I want to get to that bluff over there. Is it going to hurt to walk across this nice crypto? Like, won't it just come back? And the answer is, it. you know, it depends on what the weather conditions are. So if you're walking across soil in the middle of July, the bio crusts pretty much aren't growing in July. There's no water. It's hot. They're just hanging out there waiting for a rainstorm. So walking across soil during dry, hot conditions is the worst time to walk across the soil. If you walked across in wet times, they probably have a better chance of reestablishing more quickly before being blown away while they're all dried out and disturbed. Not, And I'm not promoting walking across soil when it's wet outside, but um, those are important things to think about. And then also, you know, your footsteps across the soil, other people see it and say, oh, I could walk across here too. And it creates a trail. And we've done lots of studies at the USGS where we all go out and walk a, walk a trail one time, 10 times. We go every year and trample the same place. And in each study, we typically find that more disturbance means longer time to recovery and even no recovery in some, in some cases. And also vehicle traffic, Jeeps, OHVs, going off trail is a huge disturbance to the soil surface. And we've found that compressional disturbances from vehicle tires can be some of the worst. And in some cases, it disturbs the soil so much that biocrusts don't even come back. So I don't have a specific number for you, but (laughs) it depends on... You know, are you disturbing cyanobacteria, just light crust? Are you disturbing, like, old-growth awesome crust? Um, but it definitely takes multiple years to decades to sometimes never never recovering. Yeah, and if I could follow up on that, um, I think considering the type of disturbance is really important um, and also the, the time scale of the disturbance. There's some types of disturbances that are inherently temporarily, such as one person walking across the landscape, and if there's enough crust sor- source population nearby, could potentially recover fairly quickly. There's other types of disturbances, such as industrial development, putting in oil pads or new roads for access to development sites, which are inherently long-term, change the ecosystem properties and occur at a larger scale. In those types of disturbances, the crust is pretty unlikely to recover on its own over time scales of years or decades. You're probably looking at much longer time scales because you're, in the, those cases, looking at primary succession, succession from an almost, starting from an almost total disturbance of the landscape rather than a ecosystem recovering from a minor disturbance. Um, grazing is kind of an interesting case of that because grazing can occur in at multiple different scales. So historically, like, Back in the 30s, um, there were really high numbers of cattle on the landscape. In some areas in southern Utah, such as the San Rafael Swell, there were five or six times as many cows on the landscape as there are now. And so when we look out at the occurrence of biocrusts on the landscape, we might be seeing relic populations from disturbances that happened before we were really measuring stuff. 
I don't think we actually know how abundant biocrusts were on the landscape, but we do know that they were more abundant prior to grazing and industrial development than they are now. Interesting. Natalie, if it takes so long to recover, tell me about some of the efforts that you have been involved in and um, that you know of that are working towards trying to restore biocrusts after they've been lost. I'd say recent, well, in the past 20 years, people have started to do experiment with biocrust recovery. It's taken many different forms, but I'd say the most basic form and most repeated way that people have tried to restore biocrust is just to scrape it off the ground from a nearby area and crumble it onto the disturbed spot. The problem with that is that you're disturbing one area to restore another. So there's been other attempts to grow crust in greenhouses. There's a big facility at NAU where many of the crusts are being grown and tried around this area. And sometimes we see success, and many times we don't see success. We have tried greenhouse crust, putting out greenhouse crust here, and we've also tried putting out field-collected crust. So we need to start targeting our restoration efforts to be at a you know good time of year. But that's hard to do, like this year when, or any year really, you don't know when it's going to rain or if it's going to snow at all. So it becomes harder to plan restoration efforts. Can I interject with a, a, a concrete example yes. of what yes. Natalie's talking about? Um, so speaking of inoculating the soil surface with biocrust crumbles under different climate conditions and seeing different results, um, we've had a really good example of this at, some, um, at a restoration experiment just south of town over the last year and a half. We've been spreading crumbles of biocrust on the soil surface and then measuring how well it grows in response to different treatments. The first year um, we spread crumbles was actually last winter, and we didn't get the biocrust spread on the soil surface until mid-February. We had a dry, windy spring last year, and after spreading the biocrust on the soil surface, we had no rain and really high winds for several weeks. The biocrust that we spread disappeared. Within three months of it, of initially deploying the biocrust, we really couldn't find anything. And, and the last time I measured in November, all there was was sand and bare soil wow. in those plots. So subsequently... At the end of November, beginning of December of this year, we redeployed a biocrust and we protected it from wind for a couple of weeks while it was fairly dry and then removed those protections in advance of this fairly large snow event and cool, wet conditions we've been experiencing subsequent to that in January. And the crusts are doing great. They are binding to the soil surface. They're growing. You can see new moss growth and some new lichen growth. Nothing's blowing away. It's a profoundly different response at the same site with similar um, crust community. Yeah, so in addition to deploying crust at the <laughs> right time of year when it's moist, We've also been experimenting with different soil stabilizing treatments. So if you put little crust crumbles down on loose soil in an area with blowing sand, 
they could just blow away before they're able to tack down or wash away from water. And so we're trying different soil stabilizers to temporarily stabilize the soil around the crust and underneath the crust so that they have a chance to tack down before being blown away. Say someone wants to build a house on a area that's full of crust. Is is there opportunity to go get those crusts from areas that are already slated to be disturbed? Yes. So someone came into our office earlier this year or last year and had bought a lot up near the golf course and said, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of crusts on my lot. Do you guys want to come collect it? And Colin and I went out and just went out there with the shovel and scraped the top couple millimeters of soil off the ground and saved it. You can save biocrust for a long time as long as you keep it dry and keep it out of the sun. So we just kept it in trash cans and we've been using it for restoration projects since. So yeah, there's a lot of development going on in Moab right now and more and more encroachment on biocrusted lands. So if anybody you know, is building a hotel or a house on an area that it has biocrust on it, they should definitely contact our office and we'll come get it. What are we envisioning here when we're talking about biocrust restoration and where are we at? Are we talking about a small scale? Or are we talking about restoring huge tracts of land? So we're definitely at the early phases of developing biocrust restoration as a really as a viable approach to um, ecological restoration. So most of the projects that have been tried so far have been occurring at the plot scale. So we're talking a couple meters squared, um, maybe spread over a, a small landscape. There have been a few attempts at biocrust restoration at larger scales where people have deployed inoculum or pellets of crust over larger landscapes. And in general, there hasn't been a lot of success with larger scale approaches because I don't think we've had developed the the right tools for doing restoration prior to people trying it at those scales. There have been a few examples of interesting successes with biocrust restoration or um, ecosystem engineering, really, at larger scales, such as um, a project in China where they stabilized moving sand dunes, in part using biocrust, also using plants and some innovative soil stabilization techniques. But we are looking towards moving to larger scales. And one of the first steps of moving to larger scales is making sure we can get enough crust to inoculate a large-scale area without just going out and decimating the crust from another area. So one part of that is um, harvesting or salvaging crust from construction sites. Another part of that is learning how to grow crust or how to cultivate crust in a nursery or a greenhouse setting. And there's been a lot of great work on greenhouse growth of crust. There's, um, as Natalie said, there's a group at NAU. There's also people at Arizona State University and CU Boulder who are doing greenhouse growth across. Um, And right now in Moab, um, one thing I'm really excited about is we're moving towards a larger scale outdoor biocrust nursery. So out in Castle Valley, we've just started setting up a multiple acre crust nursery at the Mayberry Native Plant Nursery that's run by Cara Dorenwind, who um, also runs Wild Landscapes and Rim-to-Rim Restoration here in town. So we're collaborating with her to grow crust on 
multiple acre plots to serve as an inoculum source for doing um, restoration at several sites around town, um, looking at doing restoration on, on five and ten acre tracts of land, which is a significantly larger scale than most projects have been done so far. What are some of the goals and timelines that people are thinking about with restoration? What do we hope to see and how long do we expect it to take? I guess I can only talk about what I hope to see. I want us to be able to inoculate or you know, put crust out on large swaths of land. We have large swaths of land that need biocrust restoration. Kind of my vision and Jane's vision, Jane Belknap, one of the main scientists at the USGS, also known as the Queen of Crust, she wants to be able to drop biocrust from the bellies of airplanes and have it inoculate and grow across the landscape. We're pretty far from that succeeding, but just being able to restore large swaths of land around Moab is a good start. And I think also, you know, we have to start small and starting on at trailheads where maybe there's been some disturbance. We can start doing little test plots of soil inoculations to restore areas where people frequent. Colin, after an area is restored with biocrust, does that mean then that the area can't be ever disturbed or used again? That's a great question. And I think the answer is no, it doesn't mean the area can never be used again. But it does mean the area needs to be used differently than it was used prior to the or during the biocrust disturbance. For instance, there are probably levels of grazing that are consistent with maintaining a healthy biocrust community. Those levels are lower than the very high densities that were seen historically. We don't know what they are, and there's work that needs to be done on that. Fortunately, some of that work is occurring at the Canyonlands Research Station down in Indian Creek, where they have the good fortune to have a research station operating on a working ranch. And there's been a lot of biocrust work going on at this research station simultaneous with active grazing. So a, a big question they have is how can cattle and ecosystem function simultaneously exist on the same landscape? And we don't know the answer yet. I think... We know that you can't have a ton of cows, but probably some. There almost certainly will need to be a protected period for any biocrust restoration to succeed. We know that during the early phases of biocrust establishment, um, biocrusts are fairly vulnerable to um, disturbances just because they're low population densities and any sort of disturbance will destabilize the soil, which can have a cascading impact on the on the ecosystem. Once you start losing soil, once the wind starts blowing some soil away, it creates little vulnerable zones that can expand. On top of that, I think it might even benefit the multi-use landscape to protect it to some extent and do restoration to some extent. Old ranch families around this area talk about how there used to be knee and waist high grasses and how those aren't there anymore. And a lot of that may be due to decreased topsoil and decreased um, fertility of the soil 
due to either biocrust loss or erosion or plant species change after grazing. So a little bit of protection could actually enhance the, the landscape value for other types of uses. Natalie, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? Oh, let's see. I love coming to work and being able to pop into the office of experts and being able to ask them questions about weird things that I think about in my free time. (laughs) Yeah, I love constantly learning and being able to pursue the questions that I come up with. And Colin, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? (laughs) Um... You know, yesterday I spent the day um, looking through a hand lens at different lichens from all over the western U.S., trying to figure out what they were um, based on their growth form and what their spores look like. And um, the day before that, I was writing computer code to help um, model um, biocrust responses to future climate. And the day before that, I was working in the greenhouse, watering some plants I'm growing to understand how they respond to nitrogen. And I really love the fact that I can do such a diversity of um, different um, experiments and use such a diversity of approaches to understand um, what's going on in the world around us. I think it's um, one of the best parts of being a scientist is the freedom to explore. Well, thank you both so much for this interview. It's been really cool getting to hear about all these things about BioCrest. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.